Hi, I'm Caitlin Prest, and I am here in your ear to tell you about a very incredible new show called Asking For It. Asking For It is a darkly comedic series that follows a queer femme singer whose history of violence finds her no matter how many times she runs away. It has an original soundtrack, and it'll make you laugh, cry, and feel a little bit less alone. Asking for it. Subscribe now. This is a CBC Podcast. These are the top Google search terms on the topic of love over the past week. Number five. How long does it take to fall in love? Four. What does love mean? Three. How do you know when you love someone? Two, how to love yourself. And in the eternal words of the 90s pop icon Hathaway, number one, what is love? What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me. Don't hurt me. No more. It's a tricky thing to pin down, isn't it? Love. Love is never having to say you're sorry. Love is eternal. Love is a many splendored thing. Love lifts us up where we belong. All you need is love. All you need is love. Please don't start that again. All you need is love. A girl has got to eat. All you need is love. She'll end up on the street. All you need is love. Love is just a game. And it makes sense that people would be extra uncertain right now. Looking up love, trying to define it, trying to know how to do it or if they're in it. Because everything feels a little uncertain with COVID. And if that's true for the coupled up, then it's especially true for singletons. I'm AC Rowe, and this is The Dog Project. Today, we've got two stories about finding your footing in love, romantic and otherwise. Coming up, Samantha Louie shares the love of her life with at least 50 million other people. But she's been too embarrassed to tell anybody until now. So I make a decision. I'm going to do it. I'm going to go public. I'm going to tweet. Stick with us to learn who Sam's going public about. But first, Trevor Campbell is looking back on what we've learned and endured from a year of dating during the worst pandemic in a century. In the spirit of when Harry met Sally, this is when Trevor met Carl and Angus and Mario and Daniel. In the fall of 2020, I went on a first date with this guy. We'll call him Carl. I'd met him through a dating website and we'd been chatting for about a week. Things had been going well. He was funny and creative and laughed at most of my jokes. So far, so good, right? So we agreed to meet up on a sunny Saturday to drink coffee in the park, watch the parade of neighborhood dogs out for their weekend walks, and see if our chemistry transitioned from the chat window to the real world. Turns out, it did. We had a good time. But when we went to say goodbye, things got interesting. I wasn't expecting to enjoy today, Carl began, but I did. So, let me get to the point. 
Carl was looking to form a winter bubble with someone, an arrangement that included hanging out indoors, watching movies, cooking, and cuddling. Actually, more than cuddling, he said, if I was up for it. Unsure of how to respond, I just laughed. We'd only met hours before, and now I was being asked to commit to an intimate winter for two. Sorry, I said. Do I have to answer right away? And then he told me that he already had an offer from someone else, so while I didn't have to answer right away, he'd appreciate a reply in the next few days. You know, if I wanted to keep my spot in line. If finding a mate in the 21st century was a movie, its genre would be dystopian science fiction. Even before this virus took over every aspect of our lives, singles had learned to navigate a tangle of dating sites and apps with monosyllabic names that sound like branded pharmaceuticals. Hinge, Bumble, Tinder, and Zeusk. Ask your doctor if Zeusk is right for you. Online dating offers lots of selection. We swipe through profiles like we dig through avocados in the produce section. Too firm, too squishy, too many flies. And then when we finally find a good one, we remember that BuzzFeed article declaring good fat is a myth and wonder if we should stop eating avocados altogether. It's no wonder that in the past 35 years, the number of Canadians who live alone has more than doubled. Sure, some of them choose it, but for the rest of us, Dating is hard. But while dating in the 21st century was already exhausting and embarrassing and expensive, we were figuring it out. And then COVID-19. Now, regardless of our relationship status, connection is all any of us can think about. How much we need it. How much we need to avoid it. And, as my date with Carl demonstrated, how to negotiate it like we might join custody of a King Charles Spaniel. COVID-19 has changed the way we date, but we've kept doing it. And that means we've had to try and answer a lot of new questions, such as, how do you make a move from two meters away? Do they make hand sanitizer that smells like French cologne? Has a handshake become first base? Is it inappropriate to ask the size of someone's bubble? Can a joint COVID test count as a date? Does this mask make my face look fat? The year 2020 started off really, really well in terms of dating. I joined one of those um, fun <laughs> dating websites and I met some really great people on it. And then March 13th hit when everything pretty much shut down. I was still actually in touch with some people well into March and April, but I think when we all realized that this wasn't going to end anytime soon, reality hit. And out of the few people that I was talking to, I'm in touch with one person still, and we're kind of lamenting the fact that we're holed up in our homes and can't really get together. And I think the reason why he's the only one left standing, as it were, is because 
he was the only one that really respected the boundaries and rules that were set by our province with regard to the pandemic. The other people were kind of questioning it. And I think that also makes you realize what your values are in terms of, you know, health and obeying rules. And, you know, people have different perspectives around that. I'm one for putting health as a priority and respecting other people's health. So yeah, like, are you an anti-masker? Are you an anti-vaxxer? Then you need not apply. Maybe that's what I would put on my profile. I don't know. I mean, it, it it's really important to me. So the one left standing and the one I'm still in touch with um, <laughs> did respect that. I mean, who knows what the future holds for e either of us, but he's definitely someone that I'd want to keep in touch with no matter what happens. Carl's COVID bubble ultimatum was just one incident from my many months of pandemic dating. Let's jump back to January 2020. I just moved back to Toronto after a few years abroad and was looking to start a relationship. I'd been dating someone for around a month and a half when the pandemic hit. We'll call this guy Angus. Angus and I read up on the safety measures and decided that, even though we lived apart, we could safely continue to see each other as long as we committed to a lockdown bubble. Suddenly, it was just me, Angus, and his roommate. And with no one else to see, no friends, no family, no co-workers, we went from one or two dates a week to dating overdrive. At first, it was exciting. Like, when the power goes out and you have to light candles and eat everything in the fridge so it doesn't go bad. Maybe you even make a couch for it and sleep on the floor because why not? It was that new relationship high mixed with high stakes drama. Like that bus chase movie, Speed. And it worked out just fine for Sandra Bullock and Keanu Reeves, didn't it? to warn you. I've heard relationships based on intense experiences never work. Okay. Yeah, actually, Keanu was right. Not every relationship can handle a turbocharge. Angus was a sweet guy, but it turned out we didn't have that much in common, and lockdown threw those little differences front and center. He was a comedian and could make any chore entertaining. Honestly, I would buy a ticket to watch the man sweep. But Angus's panache meant his emotions felt supersized compared to mine. And this was overwhelming when the world as we knew it was drastically changing every day. Our constant contact intensified everything and before I knew it, I was in way over my head. It was like we skipped the dating part of dating. Suddenly, we'd been together for 10 years instead of six weeks. What's the simplest way to explain it? Once, we went to pick up a box of vegetables I'd ordered, and he called my groceries our groceries. I know, I know, it sounds like nothing, but it's a good summary of my time with Angus. He was ready for our groceries, and I wasn't. It was time to pop the bubble. 
kind of had a like a long-term long-distance casual relationship with a very old friend we've known each other for like 12 years we dated when we were young but he lives in the states and so in march 2020 he was up visiting me in toronto for a week just a week fun times go out do some things see the cn tower and the day after he got here was when it was officially declared a pandemic march 12th very quickly we realized that he shouldn't go back to the states like he just shouldn't it's not safe and we sheltered in place you know we were cramped in my tiny toronto apartment and i said like let's take a couple of days my parents live near the muskokas like a friend of mine has a uh, an empty Airbnb. Like, let's go hang out there for a couple of days. We'll go skiing. We'll take some, you know, hot tub time. It'll be great. And we never left. We uh, stayed in that town for six months. And this is someone who I would love to be in a committed long-term relationship with. But because of distance, we have never had that opportunity. They live in America. I live here. We're not at the point yet where we're willing to move to each other's countries. And then all of a sudden we were thrust into like this very domesticated relationship that would have never ever have happened if it weren't for the pandemic. You know, when we were going grocery shopping, we were a household. So one of us waited in the car and one of us went grocery shopping and a very domesticated, like we did laundry together. We argued over who was gonna make dinner. We cleaned the house together. Like I taught him how to cook. He taught me how to download things on the internet really well. Like. We, we had the sort of relationship that I've always wanted with him. And it was so strange to be so happy, to be so, so, so happy in a time when people's lives are completely, I lost my job, but then being just so deliriously happy with this person. And then it was the end of the summer and we were kind of like at six months, he can't stay in Canada anymore. And we don't want to create any problems for citizenship in the future if that's a possibility so we made the smart we're like okay it's you have to go back now and that was really really hard he he left and then i went back to being you know single after i broke up with angus i headed back to the dating apps and soon i hit it off with someone new let's call him mario it was spring, the perfect weather for a safe, socially distanced walk or takeout picnic in the park. And with Mario, it all felt so easy. <laughs> so much more relaxed than my white knuckle ride with Angus in the winter. So, though we were still living apart, Mario and I decided to stop social distancing and start a bubble of our own. But I was determined to not make the same mistakes I'd made with Angus. This time, we keep it slow and steady. Life in the pandemic has such high stakes. Of course, the very real threat of illness and death. But also, so many of my friends had lost their jobs. Long-term relationships had been tested. People I knew who'd been devoted Torontonians had packed up their lives and moved away from the city. But in the midst of all that, spending time with Mario was an escape from it all. It was like skimming along the surface of a perfectly calm sea. A month passed, then two, and then three, and there we were on that smooth surface. Just the surface. Always the surface. And it was then that I discovered the second phenomenon of pandemic dating. 
Life hadn't gone into hyperdrive for Mario. It had stopped. After five months, he still behaved like he had on those first few dates. Unfailingly pleasant, incredibly polite, and impenetrably guarded. We rarely saw one another more than once a week, and if he stayed over, he was usually out the door by breakfast. Lockdown was like limbo, and Mario and I were stuck in the getting-to-know-you phase. It was like that movie, Fifty First Dates, in which Adam Sandler's character has to repeatedly re-woo a winsome amnesiac played by Drew Barrymore, because she has no short-term memory. In our case, Mario was amnesiac Drew Barrymore, albeit with much less screaming. Every time we hung out, I kept hoping we'd have moved on to that second date, but alas, it always felt like we were still meeting for the very first time. And don't get me wrong, I love a far-fetched rom-com and maintain that Drew Barrymore is an underappreciated master of her craft, but I was looking for a future. So, for the second time in 2020, I thoroughly washed my hands, donned my mask, and went back to my bubble of one. I don't really do um, online dating apps that much. What I do instead is I, I go for Instagram, and I look for people that I think are have like, like-minded interests. I feel like this is actually a better way to like do online dating because I find with dating apps, people are there for different reasons. And there's a bit of like an air of desperation. Whereas when you go for Instagram, like you're meeting them as a friend and like connecting without the intention of dating necessarily. So I was doing like that and I was just going follow, 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 follow. And then this one fellow, he messages me and says, don't I recognize you from somewhere? And I said, no, I don't believe you do. And he said, didn't you go to um, this church? So there was a church that him and I apparently went to as kids. Then I looked back at his profile and thought, oh my God, it's him. The thing is, I had a crush on him at the time. He did too, but we never spoke to each other back then. So I thought, you know what? This could be a good chance to get to know him better. (laughs) So I started talking and then not long after, we expressed interest in each other and discovered we had quite a bit in common. A lot of differences, but also quite a lot in common underneath terms of values. So far, we've only met once um, under certain controlled circumstances when we felt that there was a period where um, cases were not so increased that we felt we can go out and venture and walk around in a park. Other than that, everything we've done so far has been purely by text, uh, phone calls and video chats. And that's how it's going to be until cases start dropping, hopefully soon. Him and I have, have a different, I guess, dispositions towards taking risks and I find I'm a bit of a risk taker, whereas he's not. That's one of our major differences. I feel like I can go out and protect myself sufficiently and, you know, still enjoy my life as best I can. Um, But he takes the the guidelines very seriously and he wants to protect himself and his family. He still lives with his family and he has a grandmother. So it's almost a bit like a bit of a long distance relationship, even though he's only 40 minutes away, which I had been initially frustrated before and maybe even frustrated with him for not being more flexible to meet up with me. But 
you know, we are finding ways to make it work. And actually, there are some benefits to staying distance in the early parts of dating and actually getting to know each other and work through some kinks before doing anything physical. So it's interesting. One thing I've done is um, he loves squirrels as his favorite animal. And so I said, okay, so COVID sucks. We both know it. Why don't we take the days of waiting with COVID and turn it into something positive? So I'm drawing a squirrel every single day in different, different styles. And I'm going to turn it into a book to give to him when pieces have dropped enough, we can start kind of living our life. One of my favorite pieces of advice comes from Maya Angelou, who once said, when people show you who they are, believe them. When you start dating someone, one of the ways you really, truly get to know them is through incidental behavior. How they treat waiters, how they handle traffic jams, how they may or may not refuse to stand near certain tree trunks because of their self-diagnosed trypophobia. And before you Google trypophobia, don't. Just don't. Anyway, in some ways, the pandemic makes it easier to see who people are, like whether or not they're willing to wear a mask, how they fill their days when they have nowhere to go, or how they act when they're feeling vulnerable or afraid. On the other hand, COVID-19 safety measures make it hard to reveal much of anything. I mean this literally. Dating through the pandemic in a Canadian winter means masks, scarves, toques, and hoods. You just have to trust that somewhere, under all those layers, there's a person looking for connection. And not a coat rack. And there's another complication. COVID has obliterated our playbooks. Usually, depending on things like our culture, age, gender identity, and orientation, we share, more or less, a sort of social contract about how a relationship progresses. When we might introduce a partner to our friends or family, or head off on a weekend getaway. Even the first time we touch. That's why I fumbled through figuring out that Angus was too much, or that Mario wasn't willing to open up. And why poor Carl can't really be blamed for asking me to join him in his winter bunker after only one date. We're all just winging it. My dating life this year has been kind of a relief, to be honest with you. You know, normally the uh, landscape of internet dating is uh, one filled with desperation and exasperation. But this year, it's been kind of nice to have no choice but to stay home taking your foot off the gas as we have been this year has um, given everybody an opportunity to um, enjoy their own company or at least figure out how to enjoy your own company if you don't enjoy your own company this has not been a great year for you but it's given everybody the opportunity to be a partner to yourself you know there's a lot of pressure from society to pair up these days and there's a lot of guilt involved if you haven't partnered up so uh, this year has been a good opportunity to to realize that at least for me being on my own is absolutely fine i am a single guy uh, and have been single for quite a while now and what a relief to know you don't have to be in a relationship if you don't want to be or if it doesn't work out 
it's fine. And if eventually something does come along, then what a better partner you'll be if you actually can enjoy your own company. After my COVID bubble experiences of 2020, it felt good to press pause. Full disclosure, I love meeting new people and I love having a partner, but I don't really like dating. I'm too type A. I'm the guy who lies in bed at night planning what he's going to have for breakfast the next morning. I enjoy jarring and labeling all of my spices. And I love doing the crossword because I get a kind of cosmic satisfaction from putting things into boxes. Dating is not like that. Dating is like being in a bad improv scene where one person thinks they're on an airplane and then suddenly another person screams, I've forgotten to take the cake out of the oven! Sometimes I just want to say, wait, stop, who are you, who am I, and what is going on? I feel like that metaphor sums up my year of pandemic dating. Even when I was with someone else, it always kind of felt like we were in different scenes. I didn't really start identifying as polyamorous and dating as a polyamorous person until about three years ago. I started this year dating two people, and that was really lovely and nice. They were great. But yeah, I was dating both of those people in the beginning of the year and into the beginning of the pandemic. And at first it felt okay because they both lived in different cities than I live in, but all, you know, easy within driving distance. So at the most, I would see them maybe once a week. So at first it was like, oh, okay, well, if we're going to just switch to like a video date once a week for a couple of weeks, that seems fine. There were some really fun nights at first when it was like, ooh, just like what a weird couple of months we're going to have where we would go to gay virtual dance parties. And the plan would be like, okay, we're going to get ready together. Well, in our own separate houses, but we're going to get ready over video and we're going to pretend that we're like in the same space, getting ready, doing makeup or doing our hair, or putting on, choosing our fabulous outfits, whatever. And then we'll both go into the dance party Zoom on our computers, but then we'll also have a private phone call Zoom so that we can go in and like be part of the group and like hear the music and whatever, but I can still like see my partner and talk to them. And, and so we would have like, we would each have headphones into the dance party, but then have one earphone out so we could talk to each other in the separate call. So you'd have multiple screens and it was, it was kind of a lot to juggle, but it was also really fun. So that's what I did for a while. And it just started getting uh, more and more tiring and took up a little bit more energy. It was just too hard to continue with stuff long distance. Plus the world was, you know, changing around us. So suddenly everyone's jobs disappeared because we're theater artists. Like there were so many other pressures and stresses that came in that also contributed. Yeah, it just uh, didn't 
work out. So the bummer of being polyamorous is that then you can go through multiple breakups. So I ended up having one end in May and then one ended in June. And that was really crummy. That was hard. And here we are, potentially nearing the final chapter, knock on wood, of the COVID-19 pandemic. We have a vaccine, and a post-pandemic world seems somewhere on the horizon. Oh my god, when this thing is over, I'm just gonna slide into one of those baby Bjorn backpacks and force my friends to lug me around town just for the uninterrupted body contact. But. Can we return to dating as it was before? And if we can, should we? It seems to me that we have the opportunity to change the game. The chance to consider what we've learned through 12 months of virtual hand-holding, sweet nothings whispered through Zoom, flirty games of quiplash, and a very special Kylie Minogue YouTube concert featuring an admirable number of sequin pantsuits. This is our chance to retire what wasn't working and adopt new and better ways to live, work, and date. So I guess the question is, what has COVID taught us about connection? Um, <laughs> wash your hands. Know your boundaries. Health is wealth, and you know, if we don't have that, then we can't enjoy someone else. Uh, my advice would be don't stress too much about it. Just remember that it's important to make space for yourself first. Regardless of if you're dating people or you're not, if you want to be dating people and you can't, or it's not working, or you are scared of a you know, pandemic that's literally happening right now, you have to be your number one best date. You have to be your best date. We can learn a lot about ourselves in hard times. On the other hand, sometimes hard times are just hard. Like, thank you, I learned the lesson a few laps ago, and now I'd like to stop running, please? I know, I feel like I've reached that point. But I have learned a lot through this experience. I learned that the way someone takes care of themselves is a good indication of how they'll take care of you. I learned that the films 1917 and Uncut Gems are both too stressful to watch on a lockdown date. And I learned that cooking together is fun, but making kombucha together is slow and boring and, in some cases, poisonous. And actually, I did learn that I am my best date, even if I occasionally hog all the snacks. Well, the story begins in March. <laughs> when I was not dating at the time. Um, so, and then, well, okay, wait, can I start again? That's my boyfriend, Daniel. If he sounds a little hesitant, it's because he is. I practically forced him to get on tape so I could prove that he's real and leave you with a happy ending. Now I, I feel nervous. Because <laughs> you regret this whole thing. Okay. Well, this is perfect. We met near the end of 2020, and we clicked right away. Daniel and I seem to be taking a similar approach to pandemic dating. Cautious, careful, but looking for a real connection. 
<laughs> You're a very demanding guest. <laughs> Maya Angelou said a lot of great things, but there's another that I've been thinking about. She said, love is like a virus. It can happen to anybody at any time. A bit on the nose, actually. But anyway, maybe a pandemic is the perfect metaphor for dating. It's just two people coming together, making a connection, and seeing what's contagious. Ah, poor Daniel. This is a hazard of dating a radio producer. You will, at some point, eventually end up on the radio. That piece was written and produced by Trevor Campbell. It was produced and mixed by Veronica Simmons and edited by me, AC Rowe. Featuring stories from Lana Carrillo, Madison Espy, Matthew Chapman, Sean Elliott, Franny McKay Bennett, and of course, Daniel Downey. Coming up after the break, the only love stronger than that of a parent for a child is the love of a self-proclaimed fangirl for literally whatever she is a fan of. Sit tight. From CBC Podcasts and The Fifth Estate, Brainwashed is a multi-part investigation into the CIA's experiments in mind control. From the Cold War and MKUltra to the so-called War on Terror, we learn about a psychiatrist who used his patients as human guinea pigs and what happens when the military and medicine collide. Listen to Brainwashed on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Journalist Samantha Louie has a big love in her life. It's not her boyfriend, her parents, or her sister, or her monstera, a kind of houseplant, though she loves them all too. It's a love she shares with at least 50 million other people, and those are just the official card-carrying participants. But it's also a love that Sam has been ashamed of and kept to herself. I'm not going to tell you who or what she loves. I'm going to let her do that. Sam's story begins where so many Valentine's Day stories begin, on a hunt for the perfect thing. In this case, it's not roses or a charmingly ironic card, but something else. Here's Sam. I'm currently standing outside in the cold, and it's a little snowy today, but I am braving it all because of the fact that I have a mission today. That is to get the latest issue of Esquire magazine. It's December 4th. Over the past few days, I've checked seven stores for this month's Esquire magazine. Usually known for men's grooming tips and fashion advice, and aimed at a certain kind of stylishly dressed man. I don't think I'm Esquire's intended audience. And yet here I am, in the snow, hunting it down. Because I need this magazine. I head into the pharmacy across the street from my apartment, hoping I'll get lucky. Oh, magazine. Nope. I don't seem to have it. No. My glasses are foggy, my hair and jacket damp with wet snow. I I shiver as I leave the store with disappointment. Maybe I'll get lucky at the next one. Hi, do you have magazines here? No magazines? Okay, thank you. 
I'm already four blocks away from home when I enter my third store for the day. And suddenly, I see it. Oh my god, yes, yes, yes. Oh my god, oh my god. There it is, oh in all its glossy glory. Okay. Yes, 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 it's in the Welcome to our self-checkout. Yes, yes, yes. Oh my god. Oh my god, yes. Esquire magazine with BTS on the cover. In my hands right now is Esquire magazine. And I can just tell you, it's I can't even do it justice when I describe it, but they just look immaculate on this cover. <laughs> I'm not even lying. This is what I'm looking for. Not Esquire's guide to which cocktail to mix or which car to buy, both in that same edition, but their profile of my current obsession, the South Korean boy band BTS. I know, this all sounds excessive, but that's what fangirls do. And for as long as I can remember, I've always been a fangirl. According to the dictionary definition, fangirls are girls who are overly enthusiastic and behave in an obsessive or overexcited way. It's a hard label to feel proud of. Even the dictionary makes it sound embarrassing. But that's what I am. When I was around six, it was Sailor Moon. Later, it was Harry Potter. I even lined up outside of chapters until midnight to get the fifth book. And BTS aren't even my first band. When I was an undergrad, it was all about One Direction. Then, last February, a friend raved to me about BTS so I decided to give them a chance. I watched a live performance on YouTube of their song Black Swan. This was more than a bunch of cute guys in matching outfits, although there's no denying their beauty. I was mesmerized by their dance moves, their singing, and the set design. It just looked like art to me. And from there, I spent the next two days going down a YouTube rabbit hole. I watched them on Carpool Karaoke. How did you learn English? Actually, I've taught myself by, by friends. Friends. And on the Jimmy Fallon Show. Please welcome BT. By the end of that first week, even though I don't speak Korean, I'd memorized all the members' stage names. RM, Suga, Jin, J-Hope, Jimin, V, and Jungkook. I knew that RM did most of the talking in English, that Jin was born the same year as I was, and that BTS is short for Bulletproof Boy Scouts in Korean. The name references their message of self-love and acceptance. I had become part of BTS's ARMY, the official name for the group's fandom. It stands for Adorable Representative MC for Youth. I subscribed to their YouTube channel, along with 40 million other fans, and followed them on Twitter and Instagram. I also joined Weverse, 
the app they use to interact with their fans. At first, I kept my newfound love for the group secret. I followed them intensely on social media, never leaving a comment. I bought a BTS plushie, cramming it into a tote bag so no one would see it on the subway on my way home. And I conveniently did not mention BTS to my sister, even though I share pretty much everything with her. The truth is, I felt silly for being so invested, and frankly, too old. When I was obsessed with Sailor Moon and One Direction, I was a kid or a teenager. Okay, maybe young adult, but still, emphasis on young. Now I'm in my late 20s. I have a real job and real bills. I'm trying to be taken seriously. And loving a boy band? It made me feel ridiculous. Even though Jin is my age, all the other members of the group are younger. And the fans seem to be younger too. I was scared if people found out, they'd say I wasn't a serious journalist, or that I was wasting my time, that I should be reading up about world politics and serious issues, not watching a K-pop band on YouTube. I knew what to expect if I opened up about my new passion. I've been teased before for my fangirling. One time sticks out when I waited eight hours to see Ryan Gosling at TIFF. The disbelief, the judging by my friends. Why would you waste your time? I hope it was worth it. It was worth it, by the way. But those kinds of comments, they made me second guess how much I wanted to share. So I kept my fandom to myself. But then, the pandemic hit. And that changed things. My fandom became my lifeline. Enough is enough. It's March 2020. Go home and stay home. And I'm living alone in my apartment. I'm avoiding my parents and family so I don't get them sick. I'm in a relationship, but I can't see my boyfriend. It's stressful and lonely, so I turn to BTS for comfort. The group is soon my constant companion. When I'm out walking, I listen to Spring Day. According to a translation of the lyrics, it's about loss. The song comforts me when I miss my family and friends. And when I'm really stressed out by work in the pandemic, I listen to Euphoria. But because I live alone, I crave connection. And soon the songs themselves aren't enough. I want to find others, like me, who are going through the same thing. So I make a decision. I'm going to do it. I'm going to go public with my love of BTS. I'm going to tweet. It's April 2nd. I compose my tweet. It's about a song by a BTS member. And I write... The only thing giving me temporary happiness is listening to Sweet Night. I close Twitter and try to distract myself with something else. When I go back, 20 minutes later, nothing bad has happened. There's one like and no haters. No one makes fun of me or tells me to get a new hobby.
So I start posting more openly about my love of BTS. I start tweeting every couple of days and reposting BTS photos on Instagram. I find myself connecting with new friends and fellow fangirls. Hi, my name is Oriana Wong. I've been a fan of BTS since 2017. And one day I came across your tweet talking about BTS and that's how we connected. Through tweets and messages, Oriana and I bond through our mutual love and appreciation for the group. She's in Toronto, like me, but we never met. I've always been pretty much a fangirl. I've fanned over a lot of different phases of different bands throughout my life. Being a fangirl is just really fun because you can feel connected with a certain community of people who like the same things as you. Yeah, and I think I think how we started was because I posted a picture of my new two photo cards um, that I recently bought off Facebook Marketplace. Uh, it was of Jin and Young, and then hearing you say that there were a good choice in biases. Um, for those who don't know, biases are our favorite members of the group. Um, it made me feel a lot more comfortable. I mean, obviously, I'm supposed to be like a grown working person. So it felt a little silly for me to be so invested in a group. Yeah, I felt that way. I think in the beginning, I didn't tell anyone that I was a fan. And I didn't know who to go to, but the more I started seeing people talk about it and especially even when I found uh, friends that I know online only or uh, classmates, old classmates, people I used to know, they start talking about it. It made me feel like, yay, I can finally express this and, and let my inner fangirl come out. And so when you post it, those photos, A, they are definitely my biases. And so I felt like this is another great opportunity to find another person who I can probably scream my little bursts of uh, fangirl joy to about this particular group. And I think just finding more mutual people, it, it kind of overpowers any embarrassment we might feel, especially as adults. Because if you like something, you like something. Hearing from Oriana definitely makes me feel less isolated. But becoming a fan of BTS during a pandemic still feels kind of lonely. There are no concerts to attend with friends, no meet and greets or physical hangouts with fellow armies. But then I get an Instagram message from a friend I haven't seen in years. She notices I've been posting a lot of photos of BTS. It turns out She's also just become a fan of the group. Hello. Hi, how are you? Zen Su and I met six years ago. We were interning at a local newspaper in Hong Kong. She still lives there. So I think what really made us closer this year is the discovery that we both love BTS. We've kept in touch a lot by sending each other videos and posts on Instagram, talking about what their new performances are or how you know how much we like them and so I think that really um, was a large part of our conversations this year. We start bonding over buying BTS branded merchandise and anything the group's faces are on. That includes plushies, albums, magazine covers, and stationery. In Zen's case, 
It also includes lots of coffee bottles featuring each member. Sometimes I look at these coffee bottles and I'm like, what am I going to do with this? Because it's not like I can do anything, you know? It's just like their faces are on it. And so it kind of feels ridiculous a little bit. Right now, they're just kind of on a shelf and like on display. It's kind of funny. Like my friends who come over say that it's like a shrine that I have for BTS. It wasn't meant to be a shrine. It just, you know, just a lot of BTS stuff is on it. How do you think fans fandom and fangirls are typically perceived by someone who who's looking in from the outside i think fangirling or being a fan kind of has very negative connotations i don't know like this is just of my personal experience right where Mm -hmm. um it seems like people think that being a fan is like oh you only like them because they're cute or like they're handsome or you know, like you are crushing on them. It's like, it's more that like, I look at these people and I'm like, oh, these people are really precious. Like, they're young and they're wholesome boys. And like, I support that. I mean, it's also clear that from talking to you, it doesn't seem like there is really an age limit to being a fangirl of of a group. Yeah, I mean, I don't really understand why sometimes people think that, oh, you know, you're too old to like this or that. Like, why do people put limits on themselves for liking what they like? Reconnecting with Zen over BTS feels so nice, especially now. I hadn't heard her voice in five years. But it also leaves me asking, why am I feeling so self-conscious about my obsession with a boy band? Uh, My name is Dr. Lynn Zubernis. I'm a clinical psychologist by profession. I'm also a professor at Westchester University in Pennsylvania. It's time to unpack some of my feelings with someone who knows a lot about what it means to be a fan. My research area is fandom and the psychology of being a fan. Dr. Zubernis is a self-described fangirl, in her case of the TV series Supernatural. I was just captivated by this show. And I think what it was, partly the acting of the main two actors and partly that they really allowed these two men that the show was about, these two brothers, a really high degree of emotionality that you don't usually see, certainly not on a little genre show on the CW network. I mean, you sacrifice everything for me. Don't you think I do the same for you? You're my big brother. There's nothing I wouldn't do for you. Zubernis' love of Supernatural took her on road trips to Comic-Cons, to fan meet-and-greets, to flying across the country. She eventually co-wrote a book called Fangasm. You know, for as long as I've lived, I've been a fangirl. I haven't always been proud of the label. So I'm wondering why you think I feel this shame. Even though mainstream coverage of being a fan has, I think, gotten more positive, it still is very skewed towards negative, sort of the stereotype of the obsessive fan or the sort of pathetic fan living in their parents' basement and they are so hung up on fantasy that they don't know about real life or they don't have real interactions with people These are stereotypes, but they are not very accurate. And I don't think there's quite as much of that when we're not talking about fangirls, but we're talking about fanboys or just 
the general term of fans. I'm in Philadelphia where we are very passionate about our sports team. So I grew up seeing family members, you know, spend entire Sundays at Eagles games and, you know, wear all kinds of Eagles, you know, jerseys and paraphernalia and they want that for Christmas and nobody blinks at that or raises an eyebrow at that. That is accepted as a pretty normal thing. But when I fell in love and was just as passionate about a little genre television show on the CW, it was really not perceived in the same way. Do you think there's an age limit to be a fangirl? Absolutely not. And I think that's another one of the stereotypes. Because being a fangirl is looked on as kind of frivolous and selfish or whatever, if you're a teenager, people are likely to say, oh, well, you know, that's that's a normal part of being a teenager and you're allowed to be kind of selfish. That's what adolescence and early adulthood is about. But if you're a grown woman, a professional woman, maybe, or a, a woman with a partner or children or whatever, it's not looked at as nearly as acceptable because honestly, I think it's a lot more threatening. You know, there there are there's still a lot of misogyny in our culture and most cultures. And there's anxiety around women saying, no, this is what I'm passionate about. I'm going to do what I want to do. This is what makes me happy. And I'm going to do that. I think the best advice I have comes from my own experience, because for me, this has been a battle against that internalized shame to be able to really understand that there are really healthy things that come out of fandom and being a part of a fan community. So I remind myself of those good, healthy things that have come out of being a fan. And that's one of the most effective ways of combating that internalized shame when it starts to creep in. Hearing about Dr. Zabernis' experiences, it makes me think about the role fandom has played in my life, the friends I've made along the way. How that collective experience of loving the same thing has brought me closer to people, not just during the pandemic, but at other times in my life. When I was in university, it was One Direction. They were the topic of many of our hangouts and friend circles, and an escape from the stress of assignments, student loans, and the pressures of making it in journalism. Years later, I still connect with those friends, Our memories of One Direction mean we always have something to talk about. And our shared love of the group is a way of knowing each other, knowing our tastes, our interests. I decide it's time to take my love of BTS off social media and into the real world. It's around Thanksgiving, before the lockdown in Toronto, and there's a birthday event for one of the BTS members, being hosted at a cafe near my place. So I put on my mask, leave my apartment, and head over. I meet Minnie Luang Cam there. She organized the socially distanced party. It's what's called a fan cafe, and it's to celebrate Jimin's birthday, even though he's not there. Back in South Korea, they basically throw uh, birthday events for every K-pop idol. It's just a place where... Fans have something in common to celebrate their biases, birthdays, and you'd go there and you'd purchase a drink or dessert and then you get a cup sleeve for your coffee, obviously. And it usually has the members photo birthday and then the cafe's always decorated with just like the members like faces. I- I've seen videos and photos of 
fan cafes from around the world, and there are actually lineups outside the door, which is actually really amazing. I know. You know, we're all in this together. Like everyone's doing this. We're all lining up for the same thing. You know, we love BTS so much, and they teach people so many things. Whether it's like to love yourself and just like be open and be true to who you are. And I feel like it's almost like a safe place, I guess. So for someone who's like even like myself when I came alone, like I've met so many other army who they're not as social, they're more introverted, or、um, they came alone, like and they're shy. But just knowing that there is like a BTS birthday event, it's like oh, it's like something that we all have in common, like the love for BTS. It just it brings people out. I, I feel somewhat closer to you. I have a kinship because of our love and mutual. Respect for BTS. I'm really glad that we we got to speak today, and I also just feel seen. Oh, that actually makes me feel so good hearing that too. You know, you know, once all this dies down, like you know, we could hang out and we could talk about BTS. So, like, you know, do BTS related things with each other. I would actually love that. Right now, I may not be able to see my friends or go to a concert. I can't even get together with my parents or grandparents, but being part of a fandom allows me to connect with the world, to people, in different ways. It's not even really about BTS; it's the community of fans that's helping me. We're getting through this pandemic together, and if that makes me a fan girl, then so be it. Samantha Louie. That doc was produced by Samantha. It was co-produced and edited by Allison Cook, and featured music by BTS. The track you're hearing right now is "Boy with Love." BTS is one of the biggest musical groups of all time. In 2019 alone, they held seven world records, including the most viewed YouTube music video in 24 hours. They set that record with this song, which had 74 million 600,000 views between April 12th and 13th of 2019. The band reportedly brings about 3.6 billion dollars to the South Korean economy each year, and they've been credited with raising the stock of South Korean products like clothes, cosmetics, and food. So Samantha, yeah, she is anything but alone. That's all for us this week. The Doc Project is produced by Allison Cook, Veronica Simmons, Danair McLean, Sherry Okeke, Julia Poggle, and me. Althea Manasson is our digital producer. Our senior producer is Jennifer Warren, and our executive producer is Joan Melanson. I'm Macy Rowe. Thanks for listening. For more CBC podcasts, go to cbc.ca/podcasts.